John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. One more time. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, Your Word is truth. And we seek tonight to hear from You, to spend a few moments, Father, together studying the Word, but more than that, we want to hear Your Word. I believe, Lord, and have seen over the years the way Your Word stirs up the hearts of men and women. And I ask You to stir our hearts tonight. And while there are other things going on, things that have happened previously, things that are coming later this evening for some families, early mornings, tomorrow for others, I pray that You will dial us in to the Word of Truth tonight to truly hear Your voice, Father. And hear the wonders of this story. May it capture our hearts and change our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 29.11 says, The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. How peaceful has your Christmas season been so far? I came home on Monday night to find Cheryl waist-deep in wrapping paper. Trying to get the presents done with, with as many kids as we've got, and in-laws and outlaws and a partridge in a pear tree. I mean, we've got it all happening there in the Crawford house right now. So she was rapping, and as she often does while rapping, she was listening to an audio message, an audio story. <laughs> it concerned me a little bit. It was John Grisham's Skipping Christmas. <laughs> There's something to this I was wondering. Skipping Christmas was released November 6, 2001. It shot within three weeks to number one on the New York Times best-selling list. Many of you have read Skipping Christmas. It was a real departure for John Grisham, always writing those legal thrillers, but he decided for whatever reason to write a Christmas story. And he wrote Skipping Christmas about Luther and Nora Crank. It ended up being a movie three years, four years later, 2004, came out, a Tim Allen movie, some of you have seen that, Christmas with the Cranks. And I was curious, I was thinking about this, and and saw what Cheryl, what she was listening to, so I went to johngrisham.com, and this was on the website. Imagine a year without Christmas. No crowded malls, no corny office parties, no fruitcakes, no unwanted presents. That's just what Luther and Nora Crank have in mind when they decide that just this once they'll skip the holiday altogether. Theirs will be the only house on Hemlock Street without a rooftop frosty. They won't be hosting their annual Christmas Eve bash. They aren't even going to have a tree. They won't need one because come December 25th, they're setting sail on a Caribbean cruise. But as this weary couple is about to discover, skipping Christmas brings enormous consequences and isn't half as easy as they'd imagined. Skipping Christmas brings enormous consequences. Indeed, there's some great truth to that statement. Skipping Christmas brings enormous consequences, but maybe not as you might think. We have four Gospels in the New Testament, in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But of the four Gospel perspectives, really one Gospel, four writers giving their four different views, perspectives of Jesus. But of those four, only Matthew and Luke give us what we call the Christmas story. If you want to find out, if you want to read that story, if you have some time between now and tomorrow and you just want to sit down and read it, open up to Matthew chapter 1. In fact, why don't we do that right now? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Matthew tells this perspective, beginning again in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. 
And I know what many people today would say about a comment like that. They'd say, yeah, right. Okay. They haven't come together yet, yet she is with child. Whatever. Verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. You see, right there, in the attitude of Joseph, something wasn't right. He certainly hadn't been with her. But she was pregnant. Therefore, something's not good. She's got to be sent away. He can't marry her. And yet he's a good guy. And he doesn't want to make this a horrible scene. So he plans to send her away quietly. But verse 20, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If you wonder about that, Yeshua is Jesus' name in the Hebrew, and it means God saves. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, well, wouldn't you, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and she and he called his name Jesus. Now Matthew goes on from there, beginning with that, uh, with the prophecy from Isaiah 7.14. He starts to give one prophecy after another and show how it was fulfilled in Jesus. He talks about the Bethlehem birthplace. Well, Micah 5 verse 2 tells us that's where the Messiah would be born. Matthew talks about the flight to Egypt. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 tells us that out of Egypt I will call my son. And so therefore they ran to Egypt to hide from Herod and his massacre of the infants, which Jeremiah talks about. Jeremiah 31.15 speaks of the massacre, that Herodian infanticide. And finally, Matthew talks about their return to Nazareth and says even that is a fulfillment of prophecy because he must be called a Nazarene. Matthew's into the prophetic side of things. But then we come to Luke. Turn over to Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Skip two books over. Chapter 2. And Luke goes further back than Matthew. You see, Matthew starts there in, in Bethlehem talking about that. Luke begins with the foretelling of the birth, not of Jesus, but of John the Baptist. Jesus' cousin. Who would be born six months earlier than Jesus. And then he tells about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and and telling her. And what's interesting is the angel Gabriel showed up to Joseph in a dream, but came to Mary in person. Why? My opinion? Mary saw the angel in person because Mary needed the most encouragement. She was the one that was going to bear this child. She was the one that was going to carry. This was being done to her body. And so I think she just needed encouragement, assurance, if you will. Gabriel came to Joseph in a dream. Why? Because I think he needed faith. He needed to wake up that morning and decide, am I going to believe? Am I going to trust God in this? God always has a way of coming to us where we are. Of meeting us where we are and seeing what we need and responding to that need. That's the way our God is. He is so compassionate. Well, Luke chapter 2, Luke tells then the amazing story of the birth in those days. Verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph went up from the Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Bethlehem was David's hometown. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child, And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In that same region, there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, 
Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appear with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. I can't even imagine that night. I'm going to watch the Blu-ray when we get to heaven. Just to check it out. I mean, if you can imagine, the sky just lit up with heavenly angels. You know what was cool? We had on Sunday night our children's Christmas program. And all the kids got up there to sing. And as Leslie tells me every year, there's a certain group of our kids that are the toughest to get up there to sing. And it's our boys. You want us to do what? The girls are cool with it. They'll sing anytime, anywhere. The boys, uh uh-uh, we're not going to stand there and sing and look like idiots. Hey, boys, check this out. The angels were singing. The angels were praising God. This heavenly host, a host is an army. The angel army, these studly, massive, awesome creatures of God were praising God and singing and worshiping Him. It's cool to sing to the Lord. Well, the angels went away from them into heaven. And the shepherds began to say to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then. Now, I think that was the second thing they said. I think the first thing they said was, Ah! And let's see this thing that's happened that the Lord has made known to us. They came in a hurry. They found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising. Okay, here's the shepherds. Boys, shepherds, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. The Christmas stories, as we like to call them. Matthew's got it covered. Luke's got it covered. But curiously, the Gospel writers, Mark and John are known for skipping Christmas. They don't tell the story. Mark gives kind of a nod, I think, to the greater story, to the the Gospel. His Gospel begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And instantly he's with John the Baptist in John's ministry. He skips 30 years ahead. John's approach is completely different. And we began pulling this apart and and unpacking it on Sunday morning. How how John just comes at a completely different angle. He comes much later than the other Gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. John is completely unique in his perspective. Though all of the Gospel accounts work together. John skips the stories of the Magi and the Manger, the stars and the shepherd. But as the Grisham website reads... Skipping Christmas brings enormous consequences. You see, while Mark skipped Christmas to get on with the rest of the story, John skipped over Christmas to go back to the root of the story. To go truly back to the reality of the story. And the consequences of that reality are enormous. John takes us back to the beginning, to eternity before human existence. Back to the one called uh, the Ancient of Days, of whom the prophet Micah wrote, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Don't miss that. The prophet said this child who would be born in Bethlehem was from days of eternity. That is eternity prior to creation. Regardless of where you stand in belief tonight, this book declares Jesus Christ as God from eternity before we were ever in existence. And unto eternity, long after this world is no more. In fact, John comes out of the gate swinging in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. He was already there. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God He was with God in the beginning. Now we got into that on on Sunday morning. Really talked that one through. And I think we just barely skimmed the surface even with all of that. The enormous consequence of skipping over the birth story of Jesus is this. It is not the birth 
that makes Christ significant. It's Christ who makes the birth significant. It's Jesus Christ who was and who is and who is to come who gives substance to the story. He's the one who gives meaning to the manger, reason to the season, as we like to say, that Greek word for the word became flesh, logos, the reason, the mind, that the heart of God himself became flesh. What does that mean exactly? From the word in the beginning. John begins to make his way carefully forward, describing, listen, describing the exact moment of conception. You see, Luke deals with the birth of Christ. Matthew with the aftermath of that birth. John deals with the conception of Christ in John 1.14 when he says, The Word became flesh. The conception of Jesus. The Word became flesh in the womb of Mary. Before she wrapped the babe in swaddling clothes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, God's gift wrap. For you Christmas Eve note takers, just three things to consider tonight. Number one, the gift came wrapped in human flesh. Oh, we know that. I mean, that's simple. That's that's the incarnation, right? We got to sit on this one for a minute. The gift came wrapped in human flesh when Mary learned that she was carrying Messiah in her womb. She asked the angel, Luke one thirty four, "How can this be? Since I am a virgin." Even Mary didn't understand. This wasn't a dodge for her. She wasn't trying to hide some, you know, behavior. She didn't get it. Wait a minute. I've never been with a man. How can I be with a child? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And you know what you got to deal with, every one of us? We have to deal with whether or not we can buy that. I don't know, that sounds a little supernatural to me. Exactly. Right on. You've got to deal with this because that is the background of Jesus. That's what Jesus claimed even about Himself. God in the flesh. And everybody has to deal with Jesus one way or another. It says, for that reason the holy child shall be called the Son of God. That's what Gabriel said to Mary. Holy child is not the best translation. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But we call this whole idea of the gift coming wrapped in human flesh, we call it the Incarnation. But understand, Jesus didn't just appear like a man. He came into this world wearing human flesh. He became fully human, not part human, part God, fully human, fully incarnate. Understand the word incarnate means carnal. The carnality of Christ, you could say. He was fully carnal while yet God at the same time. And you might not like the use of that word carnal when we're talking about Jesus. Because usually when we're in churches, we talk about carnal, we're meaning sin. I don't mean sinful. I mean carnal as in the flesh. I'm talking physically, not spiritually. Besides, you might note this, when John says the word became flesh, that was a repulsive word. To many people. The word became flesh, John said. What? Sarks in the Greek. The word, the logos, the the reason, the the, the source of all creation became sarks. Flesh. Some have tried to retranslate that soma in the Greek, body. The word became soma because body at least isn't quite as disgusting as flesh. Sarks is the physical, carnal, corporeal mass of human or animal. That's what sarks means. It's used to describe the muscular part of an organ. Sarks, flesh. John said the word became flesh. Wow. There was a 
a couple of, actually several um, heresies that erupted right around the time toward the end of John's life. It doesn't take long for man to mess things up. And already people were coming up with all kinds of different explanations for the resurrected Christ, for the, the witnesses and all that they said about Jesus. And so there's, there was Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which means to know, the knowing. They, had this, they said we have this greater wisdom. There was another heresy called Docetism. And Docetism, from the Greek dokin, means to seem. And those who were a part of Docetism denied that Jesus actually became flesh. He seemed like he did, they would say. He resembled human flesh, but he wasn't really flesh. I mean, God can't be flesh. They denied the actual, literal coming of God in the flesh. But gang, the reason why that's a heresy is the flesh is vital. Several years ago, I did a teaching on Christmas Eve about the blood, the significance of the blood. Brian touched on it tonight, about the cleansing power of Christ's blood and how important it was for Christ's blood to be shed. But this is equally important, that the Word became flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 in the King James translation says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest. God was seen in the flesh. Sarks. Paul picks up on the same word. Uses the same thing. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up into glory. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says, Although Jesus existed in the form of God... He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Get this, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that word appearance there may not be as it appears. Appearance is schema in the Greek, where we get our word schematic. What Paul is saying, schema, it's, it's, it comprises everything in a person. That's what the word schema means. The form, the nature, even the structure. And what Paul says is when he came, he was found in schema as a man. In structure, in form, everything that was human, he was. The word became flesh. This was and is so important that John wrote... In his little letter, 2 John, verse 7, he said, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those, listen, who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist, John says. In other words, to deny that Jesus came in flesh is to agree with Antichrist. Is to be absolutely opposed to God. Why does this really matter though, Rick? I mean, I, I got stuff to get to here and you're talking about flesh and word and Bible. What, what does this matter for me? Why must we know and understand if we are to believe, why must we know that Jesus came wrapped in human flesh? Keep your finger there in John 1 and turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2, it's in the right, it's to the right of John a ways. A little closer to the end of the New Testament, though not quite there. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 14, Hebrews 2.14. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, talking about the children, you and me. Here he's probably leaning toward talking about Israel, but but it's overall, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Note this, in human flesh, Jesus invaded the devil's domain. He had to be human flesh. Why? Because that's where Satan was romping. That's where Satan was doing his damage. 
And rather than fight from the heavens, Jesus became flesh, put on human flesh, just like you and me, to do the battle right on the front lines. It's like the greatest general you have in an army taking off the general costume, putting on the the uniform of a private and going out to fight, fight in the front lines. That's what Jesus did. He had to. To fight Satan where Satan was. The devil's domain. It's been said that an idle mind is the devil's playground. I think you could say planet Earth is the devil's playground. And so Jesus became flesh. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.3, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Let me say to you, if you happen to not believe in Jesus tonight, the reason that you don't believe is not because you don't want to believe. The reason you don't believe right now is because the devil has veiled you from believing. And I don't mean any offense by that. But if you struggle with agnosticism or atheism or denial of this whole Christian thing, that's exactly what Satan wants. He veils the world from seeing the light of the gospel that is the good news of the glory of Jesus Christ. But I love what the Hebrew writer says. It's just amazing that he came into the world. He, he partook of flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Anybody see pictures of the zombie nativity? It's in Ohio. Guy put out on his front yard a nativity scene for Christmas, but they're all zombies. There's a doll for the Christ child in a manger with these white eyes. It's horrific. Green and red lights, which normally at Christmas time are kind of nice, put green and red lights on zombie masks and it's a little scary. And the town, and this is a big uproar and everybody's upset about this and the guy's like, well, i got rights too. Freedom of speech, right? No, it's not supposed to be freedom of stupidity. <laughs> but I was glad. The city said, you've got to take it down. So they gave him until December 26th to take care of that. So thankfully that's good. <laughs> Zombie nativity. You know what? The fear of death is very real in this world. It terrifies people. The fear of death. I mean, think about how much is driven by the fear of death. Why is it that even the smallest towns have four health clubs? Because we fear death. And we think if we work it out, we can put put it off as long as possible. What if you die on one of those machines? The fear of death. I mean, it's in everything. Medical research. Why Why so much time on medical research? Let me tell you something. My friend Mark Harris. Mark's here somewhere. There you are. Told me something the other day that really touched my heart. Mark has his whole life been in medicine. He's been an emergency room doctor. He's worked with hospitals. He's done, you wouldn't even believe the stories and, and the things that he's been involved with. But he was telling me the other day, Rick, you know the reason why I got involved in emergency room medicine as a Christian? Now, why, Mark? Because if we can save someone's life and buy them just a little bit more time to believe in Jesus, then my whole job has been worth it. That's that's good medicine right there. But all these things that we do because we fear death. Hey Satan, there's no guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. He had to become flesh that He might break the power of death. If you're afraid of death tonight, let me just submit that perhaps you don't know Jesus as well as you can. Because if you really know Him... Bring it on, man. If I die tonight, I go home to be with Jesus. And if I live a few more days, well, that's that's for the good of the kingdom, for Jesus here. I can do more perhaps here. But it's for Him. God wants you and I to know by His tangible, physical death on the cross, Jesus rendered death powerless. 1 Corinthians 15.55, Paul writes, O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. 
And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the Hebrew writer says something else. He says in verse 16, For of His fullness we have all received... Oh, I'm sorry, that was that's in John. <laughs> Back in John. Okay, Hebrews 2, 16. John 1.16 is phenomenal too. We'll get to it perhaps in a week or so. Alright, so Hebrews 2.16 For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. In other words, He had to become flesh because it wasn't spirits that He was dealing with. It wasn't spirits He came to save. It was flesh. It was you and me. Verse 17, Therefore He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, which just is a big word for absolute cleansing, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In flesh, He invaded Satan's domain. In flesh, He imparted the cleansing of sin. As Brian shared, his blood was that perfect cleansing agent, but he had to come in flesh to do it. God didn't send an angel to do this for us. That'd be weird. I mean, can you imagine an angel on the cross? You couldn't keep an angel on the cross because the nails would go right through his his spiritual hands. <laughs> Try again. Can't do it. He had to be flesh. It was flesh that was nailed to the cross. In Jesus, the supernatural met the natural, that the natural might be born again supernatural. Let me say that again for those of you who are already nodding off. In Jesus, the supernatural became the natural, that the natural might become supernatural as we are born again. But understand, He did it in the flesh. A flesh-piercing, blood-draining, down-and-dirty sacrifice. Do not try to clean up the cross. It was a mess. It was a bloody, brutal mess. His flesh, gang, was torn. I'm talking about the flesh on His back was like hamburger when they were done scourging Him. His brow... The flesh of his brow ripped apart. The flesh of his hands torn as, as those nails would tear against them even as he hung on the cross. The flesh of his feet ripping with each time he had to push up so that he could breathe. Now some might say, okay, down and dirty, Rick, that's offensive. Maybe it's a little too much reality for a Christmas Eve. But Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging, we are healed. I don't think it gets more brutally sarks, more flesh than that. Hebrews 2.18 says, For since He Himself was tempted in that which He suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You can go back to John now. But understand that in flesh, He invaded Satan's domain. He imparted the, the forgiveness of sin in flesh. And in human flesh, amazingly, Jesus identified Himself with all humanity. In flesh. Does that mean that in the flesh, Jesus finally understood us? Is that the deal? That that God put on flesh so that He could go, Oh, so this is what it's like. Oh, now I understand how they feel. Now I get it. That's absolutely wrong. Of course God understands how we feel. Of course His divine nature and His amazing compassion is beyond our comprehension. Yes, He knows exactly. Then then how come His becoming flesh identifies Him? Listen, it means that because He became flesh, we can be assured of His understanding. Not Him. He totally understood before He became flesh. But in becoming flesh, now I can look at Jesus and, and I can know He does get me. I can... I can be assured. He knows what it's like. He understands pain. He gets sorrow. He knew heartache. He understood betrayal. He gets it. Well, he got it before, but now I know that he did. Now I get that he gets it. 
He went beyond sympathy. He went beyond empathy. He went to complete identity in the flesh. Because as the Hebrew writer says, the children share in flesh and blood, so did Jesus. Well, back in John, the Word became flesh. Wow. The gift came wrapped in flesh. Second thing to note, that was the long part, okay? Second thing, quickly, the gift contained holy fullness. Not only did He come in human flesh, but He contained holy fullness. John says the Father's fullness was seen. Note this, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth were seen in Jesus in the flesh. God's grace, God's truth, God's glory. John says we have seen His glory. Well, well, we know the angels declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men on whom His favor rests. We know that, that that took place at His birth. But John says we saw with our own eyes. What's he talking about? It's a transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 1, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, His brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured. That is, He was changed. His appearance before them. His face shone like the sun. And His garments became as white as light. John says, I was there. I saw His glory with my own eyes. Listen, John did see His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration with his own eyes, but John hadn't seen nothing yet. Because John would be the one privileged to see Jesus in full revelation of the glory of God beyond anything he had seen before. Listen to this, Revelation 1.13. I saw, John writes... One like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head, his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. John says, We saw his glory. Now, i got to take you back. I told you earlier that when Mary couldn't Conceive of how she as a virgin could conceive. The angel said, Luke 135, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And I told you that phrase, holy child, it's not the best translation. The Greek phrase, holy child, there is hagios genao. You Bible students might recognize hagios, it simply means holy or, or saint. <laughs> Hagias Ganao is literally translated holy begotten. Holy begotten. Listen, understand, it's important. Jesus is never in the New Testament referred to as the Father's child. What do you mean? He's called begotten. He's called son, which is the word quios. It means heir. But He's never called the Father's child. Why? Because Jesus didn't come after the Father. Jesus is not a descendant of God, an offspring of the Father. Jesus has always been with the Father. Will always be with the Father because as Jesus said in His own words, I and the Father are one. He's not the Father's child. He's the Father's begotten Well, what does that mean? Well, He was begotten into flesh when He put on flesh and dwelt among us. When when the angel told Mary, the Holy Begotten shall be called the Son or the Heir of God, He's speaking of Jesus' divine nature. Inscribed around the Dome of the Rock Shrine on the Temple Mount today are a number of Arabic words, letterings, statements heresies 
One of them says, God is not begotten, nor does He beget. And it is a direct Muslim repudiation and denial of the truth of God's Word, prophesied and fulfilled in Jesus. My friends, I don't think I'm going too far when I say what's written on the Dome of the Rock is blasphemy by God's standard. Colossians 1.19 says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. All the fullness? The word fullness means you can't get any fuller. The flesh, the Word who became flesh, the Word that is flesh, was flesh on earth, was full of God. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. If you look at John 1.16, he says, For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. That, by the way, doesn't mean that He piled up enough grace just to cover us. What it means is of His fullness we never run out of grace. That there's enough grace to cover you for all eternity. Which is why I have a problem with purgatory. Because you see, purgatory says there's lots of grace. There's good grace, but there are some things I've got to pay for. Well, that's not what Scripture teaches. What the Bible teaches is that there is more than enough grace and more grace. And if you think you run out, all you got to do is go back to the fullness of God in Christ Jesus and there's more grace. Overflowing, constant. And there's more on this whole idea of fullness of grace and truth. We'll, we'll save that for a later study, Lord willing. But there's one last thing i got to show you. One last thing we have to unwrap as we look at this gift tonight. The gift came wrapped in human flesh. The gift contained the holy fullness of God. And finally, number three, note this. The gift comes with heavenly finality. It's the last gift you'll ever need. He says... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's dwell on that for a second. When did the Word actually become flesh? Well, as I shared, the Word became flesh in the conception. At the moment of Holy Spirit conception in the womb of Mary, the Word became flesh. Yeah, but, but when was that? And something, John may be giving us a clue right here. What do you mean? I hate to burst your ornament, but it's doubtful Jesus was born in December. Now a lot of you already know that and words out on that, so I don't think I'm ruining anybody's Christmas here. But it's doubtful He was born in December at all. Shepherds would not be out in the hills at night in December in Israel. It would be too cold. They certainly wouldn't leave the sheep out there. In fact, the sheep folds would be full up. There'd be no room for Mary and Joseph in the sheep folds. Can you imagine that? They go from the end of the sheep folds. Well, we got all sheep in here. And by the way, the mangers are full of hay because we're feeding the sheep, so there's just nothing we can do about this. The shepherds and the sheep, however, would be out in the fields in the month of Tishri. Tishri on the Jewish calendar is October. And there are those who think that perhaps Jesus was... Born in the month of October. Why? Well, one little clue here. John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And there are those who believe John may be given a clue. He became flesh and dwelt among us. October is the time of the Jewish celebration called Sukkot. Sukkot is the feast of tabernacles. The word became flesh and dwelt. The word dwelt in the Greek is skenuo, and it means tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, that word tabernacle, the, the noun form is skene in the Greek, and skene is used anytime the tabernacle is mentioned. That, you remember the tabernacle? The old tent of the Jewish people that housed the holy place and the holy of holies and the Ark of the Covenant was inside it and they it was their traveling temple while they wandered the desert for 40 years. It was a tent. In fact, it wasn't much to look at on the outside. It was what was inside that mattered. But they would carry that tabernacle around with them. So when the New Testament refers back to the tabernacle of the Jewish people, it uses that word skene, the noun form. 
But the verb form, skenuo, means to tabernacle or tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And it's only used three times in the New Testament. The first time, right here in John 1.14, describing an earthly tabernacle. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The tent was his flesh. And it's interesting that the tent of Jesus' flesh was very much like the tabernacle the children of Israel carried in the wilderness. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. For another nation to see the children of Israel marching through the desert carrying that tabernacle, they would have looked at that thing and gone, are you kidding? That's their God's house? What is their God like camping? What is this? It's nothing. Who cares about that? Later, there would be a glorious temple built in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. And then Zerubbabel's temple after that. But the first tabernacle was very simple to look at on the outside, but on the inside, gang, what was on the inside? Not just the ark, not just the mercy seat, but what was above the mercy seat? The divine presence of God. God said, that's where I will meet with you. Inside, there, in the tabernacle. Same way, Jesus had this very common, average human appearance walking the streets of Jerusalem. You wouldn't have noticed Him among any other Jew. You would have said, oh, this, you know, just a group of Jewish people walking by. Nothing to attract you to Him, physically speaking. He was just another man of flesh. But inside the fullness of God dwelt in him. Well, he came and he tabernacled among us. An earthly tabernacle. The second mention of the word tabernacle is a heavenly tabernacle. When this word skenuo is used again, it's at the midpoint of what is called the tribulation. That seven year period where the wrath of God is poured out on a Christ rejecting world. It is a period of time that is prophesied to come. Has not yet happened. And if you want to learn more about that or study it, you can go check it out in our Revelation study. It's online. You can study this thing out all day tomorrow, Christmas Day. If you'd like to do that, feel free to do that. But during that time, John, again, in this amazing revelation of Jesus, he sees a myriad, multiplied millions in heaven. And they're all around the throne. And he recognizes and realizes, he is told, they are martyrs. They are people who have given their lives in that tribulation. People who have died for faith. Their heads chopped off because they would not believe in Antichrist. And they're all gathered around the throne. And at that point, Revelation 7.15 says, For this reason they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. His skenuo. So now he tabernacles over them. Jesus tabernacled, an earthly tabernacle in the flesh. God spreads his tabernacle. He tabernacles over those who died as martyrs. The Bible teaches a deeply compassionate and tender covering for those who give up life on this earth for the sake of the name of Jesus. A heavenly tabernacle. Jesus' first coming, an earthly tabernacle. Here's the third time the word is used. An eternal tabernacle. Revelation 21, verse 3. says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. They shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. An eternal tabernacle. See, first Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. In the heavenly places we see God covering those who are His own. But eternally, ultimately, the tabernacle of God spreads out to all people for eternity. He will be our God and He Himself will be among us. He's the gift that just keeps on giving. The gift who came wrapped in human flesh. The gift who contained all the holy fullness. And the gift who comes with heavenly finality. Again, John writes in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Merry Christmas. That is good news. 
that what happened was actual. By the way, we can't say for certain, but if Jesus was born into this world to tabernacle among us in the month of Tishri, because it was the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, John says He came and He tabernacled, so perhaps there's a word play there, a clue that Jesus was born in October, if in fact He was. And by the way, there's more evidence for that. There's evidence that Jesus, based on the timing of John the Baptist's birth, and the timing of his father, Zacharias, being in the temple on the priestly cycle when he was in the temple, and then when John was born six months ahead of Jesus. And if you do the math and kind of look at all these things, as others have, I'm not smart enough, but others have done this, they come to the conclusion that it is more than likely Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles in October. So what? (laughs) Well, if that's true, then that means... The Word became flesh, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb nine months earlier, right around December 25th. Is that the case? I wasn't there, so I can't confirm. But I tell you that for one reason. It is okay, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is okay, those of you struggling with these things, it is okay to consider this time of year a profound time. That whether or not Jesus was born in the month of December, He may very well have been conceived in the month of December. Either way, to recognize Jesus any month out of the year is to do something amazingly profound. And so this Christmas, I just want to remind you, it is not the birth that makes the Christ so significant. It is the Christ that makes the birth so significant. Worship team, come on back up. Let's pray together. Father, we lift up Your name tonight. And in the name of Jesus, we worship. And we praise. Father, all these things are are truly overwhelming. There are things I think many of us need to go think about and, and consider your coming in the flesh, what you've accomplished, what you did. How far, Lord, you were willing to go to save our very lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.